Welcome back to the program when we deconstruct the essential elements of our culture today. Celebrity culture, the privilege of wealth, the importance of popular culture in shaping the broader national conversation. Even our obsession with the automobile. We find that so much of it has its roots in the 1920s. Perhaps the endurance of Gadsby is that it represents a time that was kind of the line of demarcation for the country. One world before the early 1920s and another after. This is the world that Sarah Churchwell takes us into in her new book, Careless People. A kind of novel about a novel, Careless People tries to capture the ethos of the 20s themselves, the origins of the time, and the great American novel that still defines it. Sarah Churchwell is a professor of American literature and public understanding of the humanities at the University of East Anglia. She's the author of the previous book, The Many Lives of Marilyn Monroe, and it is my pleasure to welcome Sarah Churchwell here to talk about careless people, murder, mayhem, and the invention of the great Gatsby. Sarah, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's great to have you here. Talk a little bit first about the 1920s, this period in the early 1920s, as a kind of cultural line of demarcation in the country, the sense that, that it changed things in ways that, that we're still dealing with today. Absolutely. I mean, the, you'll remember that, that Gatsby is set in 1922, and, and so I, I wanted to understand the early 1920s, um, as opposed to some of our ideas about, about the 20s that come from later in the decade. And, and it turns out that the 20s, to my mind anyway, were not unlike the 60s, in the sense that in the, the early part of the decade is actually pretty conservative. The same way that in 1962, you're basically still kind of in the 50s. Mm-hmm. And then in the late 60s, you're basically in the 70s. And, and something really important happens. And I think that parallel with the 60s is instructive because the 19, in the 1920s, we see our first real sexual revolution. Um, women get the vote in 1920, of course. Uh, and they, we start to have debates about uh, reproductive rights contraception is starting to make its way into the conversation in a way that it never has before. Women are drinking and smoking. Um, They're getting cars. They're getting jobs. So those sorts of, uh, I mean, that's half of the population. There's been a, there's a massive social change that um, starts to kick off. But also there are changes in the media. Actually, the, the invention of the media as we know it happens at the same time. One of the things I found is that the words mass market and mass media were both coined in 1922 and 1923. It literally, uh, our notion of mass media sort of explodes in the early 1920s, and with it comes celebrity culture. So radio first comes into American homes in 1922. The BBC is founded at the end of 1922, and the words broadcast and broadcasting enter the language at the same time. Time. So all of these sorts of ideas that, that we may consider to be kind of post-World War II phenomena are actually have their, have their roots in the 1920s. The other, um, the other part of the world, of, of our modern world, that really starts to emerge then as well is merchant banking. Um, the whole industry of merchant banking is invented at that point with the stock market boom. And, and, and as you can hear from what the examples that I'm giving, an easy way to track this is with the, the coining of new words and, and, uh, and new phrases to describe these new ideas. And we, we get the phrase merchant bank for the first time. We get arbitrage, deflationary, inflationary. And to my amazement, uh, the word subprime is first coined in 1923. Ponzi schemes are first happening between 1920 and 1922. So this sense that a lot of the things that we've been dealing with and that we think of as perhaps being unique to our era uh, are actually starting in the 1920s. 
Was there the same degree, though, of self-awareness with respect to things changing? When we look at the 60s, people that were part of it had a sense, even if they weren't deeply a part of it, a sense that something was changing, that there was some fundamental tectonic shift that was taking place. Was the same true in the early 20s? Definitely. Um, there, there was, that's why Fitzgerald calls it the Jazz Age, and you know, he always took credit for coming up with that phrase. Um, they, they, the sense that the, the, this era is new enough that it needs its own name, um, that something really radical is happening. Although the other thing to remember about the 1920s, is, which I think we often forget, is that because it was an era of big business, um, you know, with, the, with the stock market booming the way that it was, it was also it was a decade in which there was not a single Democratic uh, president. It was all Republicans, and it was and that's of course part of the reason why the stock market was able to boom because they were friendly uh, to to business and to big business. So what you actually get is a country that is more um, divided than we think it is. It's also the decade, of course, of the Scopes Monkey Trial, um, with the, the fight over whether Darwinism can be taught in the schools is the same year as The Great Gatsby comes out. So you absolutely get the same kinds of forces of progressive change and the sense that there's, that there's a real, uh, that there's a new world that is emerging, but you also get the conservative forces pushing back against that the same way that you did, say, in the late 60s in the battles over Vietnam. There's also this sense, again, as it relates to our culture today, of really strong aspirational culture. It was the, really the beginning of the middle class in so many respects. Absolutely. I mean, this is, and, and again, this has a lot to do with the booming stock market. Fitzgerald writes in many of his retrospective essays about the Jazz Age, about how, you know, he, he went to his barber, and his barber had made half a million dollars on the stock market and retired. So these, and it's their paper fortunes. I mean, they, they off, many of them lost them, of course, in 1929, but they don't know that. Uh, in the in the years of the boom, and so what you get is everybody was speculating on the stock market. But it, it was like uh, like trying to win the lottery or uh, you know gambling today. You know, if you had ten bucks, you put it in the stock market because you might make thousands. And so people who were uh, you know who were poor, who were working class, who were underprivileged, were suddenly making magical money. And that's part of where the excitement came from. And so this sense that, yes, that, that if, you, if you worked hard, sure, if you got a little bit lucky, that America was literally this kind of, you know, land of golden opportunity where it was, you know, it was like alchemy. They were, they were making gold out of straw, you know. And so they just thought the money was, a lot of them thought the money was going to keep coming. And a lot, and a lot of people made a, a lot of money very fast. And, of course, we haven't yet mentioned the illegal money that people were making, but prohibition is a very important part of this. Right. And of course, that's the story of Jay Gadsby, uh, the young man who can make such a massive fortune in only five years, because he is dabbling in all the era's illegal enterprises, not just bootlegging, but Fitzgerald hints that he's also involved in financial frauds, um, and that he's, you know, he's involved in all kinds of shady deals. And because it was not a particularly well-regulated era, and because prohibition fostered this general sense of uh, of kind of flouting the law. There was a sense the law had become ridiculous, and and so nobody was really paying attention to it. And what you have is is an era during which uh, crime starts out being being quite disorganized. You just have uh, you know little bootleggers here and there, and over the course of the decade, it gets organized and strengthened, and so people start to make fortunes also on the black market. And so you get 
you know, that's what Fitzgerald is, is portraying here as somebody like Jay Gatsby, who comes from nowhere, isn't educated, is, as both Nick and Jordan describe him, a tough and a roughneck. He's a bit of a thug. And he makes this immense fortune very quickly in underhanded dealings and suddenly joins not he skips right over the middle class and becomes the nouveau riche and so this is an era in which you have a new middle class you also have a nouveau riche and the sense that um that that the classes are shifting faster than the country can keep up with uh, and and of course again you know the forces of conservatism the old rich in the forms of people like daisy and tom buchanan are none too happy about it in that sense, the novel is prophetic in so many respects, and yet it was not realized that it was at the time. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I found that I was trying to do, or, or that my research was, was making clear to me, was why its first readers in 1925 didn't really get it. And I think that the reason they didn't get it was because Fitzgerald was using the, the, the material of the world around all of them, the really familiar stories, stories from newspapers and just part of popular culture, and it was all making its way into his novel. And so all they could see were those uh, current details, and it was a story about trashy people, um, you know, tabloid figures, and none of them could really see what it was that he was doing. And, and the analogy that I draw is, imagine if today somebody wrote a tremendous work of art, but it was about the Kardashians. We, I don't think we would necessarily see that it was a tremendous work of art because we wouldn't see past what we see as the absurdity of its subject matter. I mean, it wouldn't rank as great art. We wouldn't even be thinking about it in those terms. But the, in terms of the, his prophetic insight into where America was going, which is absolutely right, he's writing in the middle of the party and saying the party's going to come crashing to an end. Well, A, that's not something that they want to hear. But B, by definition, you're only a prophet once events have proved you right. Uh, until then, you're just a crackpot. Uh, so he's, in that sense, the, the greatness of Gatsby couldn't be recognized until after the Depression and the Second World War had showed that Fitzgerald was not just a crank, you know, uh, who didn't understand where the country was going, but actually had this keen, intuitive uh, ability to cut right through it and to see that what, that what Jay Gatsby emblematizes um, is a shift in the way that American money and power was going to be construed. And in that sense, I go back to the Kardashians and say, you know, something like that, um, that, that sort of, uh, you know, that, that sort of phenomenon where somebody makes a lot of money and some people think they're vulgar and some people think they're fabulous, um, that to me is the, is the truth. Uh, it's, the, it's the proof, rather, of... Fitzgerald's prophecy. This is this is exactly what he saw: is that the Jay Gatsby's of the world, once um, once the Tom Buchanan's got pushed out of the way, the Jay Gatsby's of the world would take over. And you know, today Jay Gatsby would be in America; he would absolutely be a reality TV star. <laughs> Talk a little bit about how you've woven some of these ideas into your own story in Careless People. Well, what I tried to do was to uh, reconstruct the end of 1922, which is the, the bulk of my book is the story of, of a few months at the end of 1922, because that's the year that, as, as I said earlier, that's the year that Gatsby sets the novel in. But it's also the year that Scott and Zelda moved to Long Island and began the parties that would inspire Jay Gatsby's uh, great party scenes, or rather the great Gatsby's great party scenes. And it's also, though, the year in which, uh, as I was going back to the, uh, the newspapers and, and to documentary sources to try to understand that world better, 
Um, I also found that there was a murder mystery that broke just as the Fitzgeralds were leaving for New York. A couple was found murdered in a field outside of New Brunswick, New Jersey, and it was called the Hall Mills murder, and it became uh, the murder of the decade. And it's been since it's been forgotten. Um, we tend to, if we think about crimes in the 20s, we tend to think about Leopold and Loeb or the Lindbergh baby. But at the time, they saw Hall Mills as one of the biggest. Uh, they, they called it, as I say, the murder of the decade. It was, you know, the murder of the century. It was, it was this scandal that defined the era. And as I was, for them, and as I was reading through the story, it struck me that it had all kinds of parallels with Gatsby. And so what I ended up trying to do was to write a kind of nonfiction companion piece to The Great Gatsby that would sort of reflect on, find echoes and resonances in the real world that Fitzgerald was drawing on to help us see that, that he, it wasn't all his imagination, that what he was doing was registering the meanings of the world around him and turning them into art. And so what I try to do is to, is to kind of braid three, three stories together. One is the story of Scott and Zelda at the end of 1922 and 1923 in New York and try to explain what New York was actually like, what the world in 1922 really felt like as opposed to our myths about it. And I'll give just two very quick examples of that. Um, one is that we all picture the women in knee-length flapper skirts with pleats and fringes and spangles, but that's all later in the 20s. In 1922, and indeed 1923 and 1924, when Fitzgerald is writing the novel, women are in ankle-length dresses. So the dresses are all longer, and the world is more conservative than we think it is. Um, also, we all think they're dancing the Charleston, but they weren't. The Charleston becomes a dance craze after Gatsby is published. So it was details like that that interested me. How did prohibition actually work? Um, you know, how, what, what did, how did you make bathtub gin? I actually found Scott Fitzgerald's recipe for bathtub gin. The sense of, of what the world was like. So there's that story. And then there's the story of the Hall Mills murder as it unfolds. And then there's the story of the novel of The Great Gatsby, which I try to weave in and out of it so that always these stories are coming back to the novel to try to amplify it in some way, to try to help us understand it better. So I sort of try to mix um, history, biography, and literature uh, together is the idea. And, and the other part, and you touched on this a little while ago, is the sensationalism of all of this created, and, and it's the one thing that often gets left out of so much of the history of the time, a kind of pushback that there really were conservative elements at the time that, that saw this in the same way that conservative elements saw the 60s. Absolutely. And indeed, the conservative, you know, that we're having similar arguments today, today between, right. you know, progressive, uh, progressives and conservatives. So the, uh, you know, the, the, the Buchanans really represent that to a certain extent. I mean, Tom Buchanan is a white supremacist for a reason. You know, that's the first thing that we basically hear him say in the novel is that he wants to keep, you know, the, the quote-unquote colored hordes from taking over the world and that he believes that, you know, he's Nordic and superior. And, of course, that is a, a, a very early code for what would be called, you know, the, the series of Arianism. I mean, that's, that's what he's espousing. So he's basically a fascist, uh, avant la and he is... Uh, he's in the novel, I think, to represent those forces of establishment power that is not going away without a fight, that is not letting the Jay Gatsby's take over the world. And you see that in also the, you know, the literature and the history of the period. Um, that there is, it is absolutely a time of big business. That's one of the reasons why... If you remember, one of the most famous passages in the novel is that um, when Jay Gatsby invents his platonic ideal of himself, Fitzgerald says, 
So he's a, he's a son of God, which means he must be about his father's business, the service of a great, uh, of a vast, vulgar, and meretricious beauty, right? This idea that it's meretricious, that it's bad, that it's actually intrinsically the, the corrupting and false, um, that you're this chasing of wealth and, and chasing of, uh, you know, and, and thinking that business is a religion is actually a discourse in the 1920s. It's something they, they talked about a lot. You see it in the newspapers and the magazines, uh, people writing about the new religion of business. And they're, and they're not saying that ironically. They're actually saying, this is what, America, this is what America's faith sh- should be in. We should have faith in business. Business is our God. Business is our religion. And Fitzgerald, who had been raised a Catholic, was slightly horrified by that idea. Um, and the, the sense that there's a, there's a whole strand of the country that fervently believes that if you, in, in what we would call, you know, something like, you know, free market capitalism, um, they fervently believe that if you just give business its head, they will be able to make everybody rich. And, and that worked for a couple of years, and then the crash happened, and they were proven drastically wrong. And this was the ethos that was preached by Harding and Coolidge when they were elected in the early 1920s. And in fact, that corruption, the kind of of corruption you're talking about, reached all the way to the White House during the Harding administration. It sure did. The Teapot Dome scandal is 1923, right as Fitzgerald is starting to think about this novel. And he wrote, just before he wrote Gatsby, one of the things that's interesting about Fitzgerald's career is that just before he wrote his greatest masterpiece, he wrote his greatest flop, a play called The Vegetable that virtually everybody has forgotten about and nobody's ever seen. It's, um, you, know, you, can, you can read it, but it's a political satire, and it's a satire of the Teapot Dome scandal. The, the, um, the fact that Harding's cabinet, you know, they were almost all corrupt, and they were, and they were selling oil fields, uh, um, there, you know, all kinds of bribery and graft, and it became clear that, the, that everybody was just, you know, uh, making money wherever they could with no regard to any sense of ethics or, you know, indeed even legality, although because it was such a lax era, a lot, a lot of stuff was legal, but what they were doing with the Teapot Dome scandal was completely illegal. And, and that's a real backdrop to, um, to I think, the, the inspiring ideas in Fitzgerald's head as, as he writes Gatsby is this sense that everybody knows the country is, is getting incredibly corrupt. That's part of the reason they bring in uh, Coolidge, of course, is because, you know, whatever Coolidge's shortcomings as a president might have been, nobody ever accused him of corruption. He was he does seem to have indeed been uh, totally honest, but he was a friend of big business, as, as they, uh, as you say, as they both were, and they dominate um, the the nineteen the nineteen twenties. And then, of course, there's Hoover, who is an even bigger fan of big business, uh, and and presides over the crash. And it's and it's because of those successive generations of um, of those particular Republican administrations that. Uh, in part, the crash happens, and then and then FDR comes in to to try to you know change all of that. And and you know sometimes I think people also forget that the reason why prohibition was repealed it was repealed in the Depression, not in the 20s. It was repealed in 1933, and one of the big arguments for repealing it was that um, the country desperately needed the revenue, the tax revenue. Um, from alcohol, they couldn't afford to keep it illegal anymore because it was it was channeling money to people like Al Capone instead of to the government. And so, one of the reasons that they uh, re-legalized alcohol was totally pragmatic and totally economically motivated. Talk a little bit about doing this, researching this, writing this in the context of today and what we're seeing with respect to to class shifting 
and economics today. Well, absolutely. Look, I started this book in 2009, and one of the things that, that first leapt out at me, I, I mentioned two of them briefly a moment ago, that first leapt out at me was the fact that there is a whole conversation happening about merchant banking and about, you know, what today would be, I mean, Nick goes to New York to be a bond salesman at the beginning of The Great Gatsby. And I think the best analogy with today would be going to New York to become a hedge fund guy. He's going there to make his fortune in a business that's basically legal, but everybody knows there are some shady practitioners and that you can kind of, you know, you can, you can go right to the edge of, of good practice. Nick has gone to find his fortune. And the, the sense that the, there are these very strong parallels with uh, um, a country, a, a society in which the, the, the chase after money, you know, the greed is good, uh, ethos is really taking over. And so as I was reading this, I thought, you know, it, it's, it's really quite extraordinary that, um, that this language of, of merchant banking is starting to emerge right at this time. These words that I think of as being very, I, I thought of, as being very kind of associated with the, the 1980s, like, say, arbitrage, um, and, and then, as I say, I found that subprime was actually coined in 1923, and I was starting this book um, in 2009 when, you know, we were talking about nothing but subprime. And it, it just, um, it struck me that there were incredible parallels between the early 1920s and uh, the world that we were living in right then. And, and you know, we managed not to, uh, so far, not to have a crash the way that they did, but we've certainly been, you know, teetering right on the edge. And... The, the other thing that, that I found that made it really clear to me was going through the newspapers, um, there were these headlines um, about, that said things like the Ponzi lesson. And I thought, well, this is interesting, and started looking more into uh, Charles Ponzi, who gives his name to the Ponzi scheme. And it turns out the first Ponzi scheme was in 1920, and he was being prosecuted between 1920 and 1922. And the phrase Ponzi scheme very quickly starts to be applied to other people doing similarly dodgy things. And, of course, I was reading this literally as, you know, the New York Times is reporting on, on Bernie Madoff in a, you know, a, an almost daily basis. And so it was pretty hard for me to miss. And then you start to realize from that you can extrapolate out uh, and see that there, are, that there are many parallels with today, many more than we thought. We were talking about the emergence of mass media and new notions of celebrity earlier, and I think that's a similar, uh, you know, a similar uh, phenomenon. Um, the, for me, one of, the, one of the most striking things that I found was how modern the language of the 1920s often was. Um, and you know, I found a couple of things that, that really surprised me. The, the fact that the word cool um, is, was used in the way that we use it to mean you know, a, a term of approval uh, in 1918. Um, I've actually found the phrase celebrity stalker in 1923, although they, they use it uh, not to mean somebody who means harm, just somebody who wants to be around celebrities. So it's a slightly different meaning. But still, the basic idea is there. The word post-feminist first appears in 1919. Um, Fitzgerald is credited with being the first to record the use of wicked as a term of approval. So I thought of that as 90 slang, and then there it is in this side of paradise as I'm reading it. And uh, at the end of 1922, the poet E.E. Cummings is credited with the first recorded use of the word party as a verb, uh, to party. And so it, it struck me as I, was, as I was looking at all that, you know, if, if somebody said, we partied last night and it was wicked, you would think that was, at least I would think that was really contemporary slang. But they could have said that in the 20s. 
Of course, the other symbolic aspect, and Fitzgerald uses this effectively, and, and a lot of it in, in Gadsby, is the automobile and, and its emergence yeah. at that time. Absolutely. That's a really important social change. The people, you know, the, the decade sees the explosion of uh, the automobile in America, where it goes from being something that only the very rich have in 1919 to being something that anybody who's even reasonably affluent has. Uh, by the end of the decade. And of course, all kinds of social changes come about as a result of this. It creates literal mobility. So suddenly people are able to leave the small towns where they've always lived or able to go back and forth. So moving is no longer, uh, you know, such a kind of permanent or semi-permanent thing. You can, you can leave home, go work in the city, and then go home and visit your folks. And all of that becomes more possible. And America starts to, um, starts to design itself around making it easier for people to have cars. In fact, uh, Fitzgerald writes a, an, an essay in 1923 called The Cruise of the Rolling Junk that in some ways is the first road trip story. Um, he's, always, he's always ahead of the game on, on this. And so the sense that the road trip is something that might, that might start to have symbolic meaning to America, that it would become the, the modern, the 20th century version of, you know, the pioneers and covered wagons, that this is how you go find your destiny, um, the sense that you can be on a, on a kind of modern American quest uh, for, you know, the, the meaning of life or for your, you know, to go find your fortune or, or whatever it might be um, that you're seeking. But one of the things that I found that was that in the in the early 1920s in particular, as cars come in, it's all pretty chaotic, and it, it isn't the case that they just sort of systematically get the cars and they start to make people have licenses and make sure that they're properly trained and they put in traffic lights. All of that happens in a really haphazard way, partly in, as a result of the number of accidents that they were having. So. I found in, in 1922, for example, that uh, New York City didn't have um, any kind of traffic signals at most intersections. The only rule was to just look out for other people. <laughs> and, and sometimes people forgot, especially if they'd been drinking. Um, they, didn't have, they didn't make a distinction between whether you were driving drunk or uh, driving sober. They, didn't have, they were agitating to get driver's licenses. Um, so people didn't necessarily know how to drive and are getting behind the wheel drunk uh, driving through the city. And the, um, the, the only rule that they had was that you weren't supposed to go over eight miles an hour when you turned a corner. So, you know, look out for other cars, try to go around the corner slowly, and that's basically it. Um, and then the, I found this uh, extraordinary uh, fact, which I hadn't known at all, um, which is that they start building traffic signals in New York in 1922. There are these giant 23-foot-high granite traffic signals that they build on Fifth Avenue, which do have red light and green signals, but they use the colors inconsistently and everybody got confused. And for me, there was this wonderful resonance, of course, this is the novel, you know, whose most famous symbol has to be that green light at the end of the dock. And it turns out that there's a, that there's a whole argument swirling around um, in 1922, from 1922 to 1924, about the meaning of the green light in New York. And is it supposed to mean stop? Is it supposed to mean go? And, they, and the, these um, traffic signals actually, you know, they, the law of unintended consequences mean that they cause as many accidents as they, uh, as they prevented. And they were dug up uh, out of Fifth Avenue in 1929. So they, they just kind of spanned the decade, and then people forgot that they were ever even there. And, and it gives you, at least it gave me a real sense of, of why for Fitzgerald, it, it would be so. It would it would be so. It would be so sensible for him to imagine his story hinging on reckless drivers, and that that becomes such an obvious metaphor for 
the, the carelessness of the world around them, that car crashes would become so important to the story because car crashes were a, a daily aspect of life in the early 1920s. Sarah Churchwell, the book is Careless People, Murder, Mayhem, and the Invention of the Great Gatsby. Sarah, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you very much. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 